Each day, I have the privilege of, of talking and walking with people who are discerning if they should go overseas to serve. And, and much of the conversation focuses on calling. Calling is a term we hear anytime we hear a missionary share about why they became a missionary. You know, growing up, calling, this word calling was such a supernatural thing. You know, it was, you know, a dream they had or, or a special event or a sermon or a conference. But is this how God gives us a calling? And is calling only reserved for those who are committed to full-time ministry? And if not, how do we find out what our calling is for our life? Today, we're actually going to look at the life of Nehemiah and six lessons that we can learn that will hopefully help us discern how God is calling us in our own lives. But before we get, let's briefly just pray for this time together. Father, open our ears to hear your words and to know your voice. Speak to our hearts and uh, strengthen our wills that we may serve you now, today, and always. Amen. So the book of Nehemiah can actually be read as a second part of a larger volume. It actually starts uh, in the book of Ezra. And together, these volumes are known as the Restoration Texts. And, and these texts focus on the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem. Here's a bit of a timeline. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. 539 BC, Babylon falls to Persia and Empress Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And so the Jews returned in three phases. The first phase was led by Zerubbabel uh, and in 536 BC, and he started the rebuilding of the temple. Many years later, Ezra would lead the second wave of about 1,500 families, and he would actually complete the temple's restoration. And then that leads us to Nehemiah in 445 BC that led the third wave to build the city uh, gates and to fix the wall. Born in exile, Nehemiah rose to the position of cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I. Uh, but the position of cupbearer was pretty important as it gave uh, him confidential access to the king. So on the day Nehemiah returned to Persia, uh, Nehemiah's brother returned to Persia from a visit to Jerusalem, he drew a sad and ugly picture of the holy city, now with its topless walls and its listless inhabitants. Heartbroken, Nehemiah began to weep and cry, and for days he prayed and he fasted. Nehemiah 2 verse 12 tells us, Then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. It may seem obvious, but the first step of discerning God's calling for our lives is to simply listen to him. Nehemiah is mentioned, he fasted and he prayed for days until he could clearly hear God's calling. But how does God speak to us? It's clear that in scripture, God spoke on many occasions audibly to people. He revealed himself audibly to Adam and Eve. He talked to Moses. He talked to Noah, he talked to Abraham and many others. But is that how God talks to us today? And if we're not getting this clear, audible voice from God, does that mean he's not talking to us? You know, as a parent, um, I often get really frustrated 
uh, because I feel like my kids aren't listening to me. Does that sound familiar, right? And, and to be fair, if my two kids were here, in the, here today, they'd probably say the same thing about me as a dad. That, that whole saying that we say that the words go in one ear and out the other. You know, they're just not hearing my words. And I sometimes wonder, is this what God thinks about us? Because the truth is, God is constantly speaking to us in a variety of ways. Psalm, 1, Psalm 19 tells us that God reveals himself in, through nature, through the created world. It says the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. But primarily, God speaks to us through scripture, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so whether it's the teachings you get on Sundays from Pastor Kevin or your small groups or your fellowships or your devotions, God is constantly speaking to us through scripture. A calling is not just some passionate feeling or a deep purpose. But discovering God's call for our life begins with actively listening to what he is saying. And it starts by diving into his word and allowing that to speak to us. At TEAM, like many other organizations, we require that all our workers take a day of fast and prayer. And they encourage them to do it more than once, you know, uh, once a quarter at least. And regardless of the organization, the instructions are the same. It is unplug your phone, turn off all your devices, get rid of all distractions, go somewhere outside, preferably in nature, and bring only your Bible, a notepad, and a pen. And then start reading and start praying and start listening to what God is trying to tell you. It may seem obvious, but a calling requires us to actively listen to God through prayer and meditation of his word. The key word here is to be active. It requires action on our part. Being active means regularly looking and reading his word. If the only time we're picking up our Bibles is on Sunday, it's very likely we are missing the very thing God is trying to tell us. You know, our, our generation is the most knowledgeable of any generation in all history. Did you know that? You know, we have, with these amazing devices that we carry, access to every version of the Bible, commentaries, biblical knowledge. I mean, we can have enough information that would fill thousands, thousands of libraries. The challenge of our generation isn't a matter of knowledge or input. The challenge our generation is facing is application. We need to actively seek God's call and listen to him. We can't be waiting for some extraordinary message. We need to be actively seeking it. And scripture is the first place we need to look. If the first lesson is who we're listening to, the second lesson is who we're depending on. 
You know what, Nehemiah requested could have easily had him imprisoned or worse executed. While the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem, what purpose would he have for rebuilding the wall? You know, to the king, this could have been, you know, interpreted as an act of aggression or an act of war. But this request that Nehemiah makes reveals four things about the character of Nehemiah. Firstly, Nehemiah was incredibly respected, trusted, and loved. This was not a relationship that was built overnight, but a relationship that he had built over time. And it shows the type of integrity Nehemiah must have lived by to have the relational capital to ask such a request of the king. Secondly, clearly, Nehemiah was brave and bold. Like I mentioned, I mean, anyone else who asked the king for what he asked for might have ended up in prison. But Nehemiah knew what he was called to do. And he felt so strong about it that he was willing to make the bold request. But this wasn't some impulsive thing that he did. This wasn't some macho uh, display of his influence. No, Nehemiah made this decision based on prayer. In, in uh, Nehemiah 2 verse 4, we read that um, he said to the king, before he asked the king, he prayed before he made this request. Nehemiah really committed this ask. He was a man that walked closely with God in all his decisions. But perhaps most significantly, Nehemiah was willing to sacrifice anything, anything for God. Nehemiah was leaving a very high-ranking role. The cupbearer was one of the most important positions in the king's inner circle. Now, as a king, people were constantly trying to take his throne. And the only way you could take the throne of a king was to kill him. And what was the easiest way to kill a king? You poison his wine. It's fast. It's undetectable. Poison was the choice of every assassin. And so the cupbearer had to be someone that the king literally trusted with his life. Some historians write that Nehemiah was so loved and so trusted that he rose to as high as governor, like a prime minister, in the king's court. So when we look at this from a worldly point of view, Nehemiah had nothing to gain by doing this. He had a great life. He was, he was at the top of his game. He had nothing financially or personally to gain from building this wall. Remember, he was born in exile. It's not like he had these memories of growing up in Jerusalem as a child. The truth is he had everything to lose, including his life, by taking on this task. But Nehemiah's calling was so clear and his determination as such that he wasn't concerned about what he was risking or even losing, but he relied on soul dependence on God and a faith and trust that God would see this through and provide everything he would ever need. Nehemiah understood that while giving up his job security, his high position, and even his safety made him vulnerable, relying on God's power, on God's strength, and depending solely on him is what he needed to do to answer this call. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can actually sign up 
um, to, to receive prayer letters from all the missionaries we support. And, and I encourage you to do that because if you want a modern example of what it means to live a life on total dependence and faith, just read some of our prayer letters, but particularly read Lavelle's latest post and what he's going through right now in Myanmar. That is living by faith and dependence on God. Are we prepared to rely on God's strength and not our own? And are we willing to give God our total reliance? And this leads us to the third lesson. A calling requires us to draw others towards God. So what was the significance of rebuilding this wall? In Nehemiah 1, verse 3, it says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province um, who had survived the exiles in great, I'm trying to read here, trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So two reasons are highlighted here. First, the gates had to be fixed because there was trouble. But secondly, it had to be fixed because there was shame. The Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And these returned exiles had rebuilt the temple. But the trouble now was they were now in need of protection. From a practical standpoint, a lack of a fortified wall left them defenseless against their enemies. And so there was a real need for the walls and gates to be fixed. Uh, they needed protection from weather, wild animals, opposing people, enemies who could just easily walk in. A broken wall and gates left the Jewish people vulnerable. But the second reason, the second reason was because the Jews felt shame. A city with broken walls and gates revealed a defeated people. The Jewish people had returned to their homeland and they felt humiliated at living at a destroyed city. And there was this sense even that God had somehow abandoned them. And so they in turn began to forget about God. In Nehemiah 2 verse 17 we read, this uh, is Nehemiah talking to the Jewish leaders and he says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so we will no longer be in disgrace. A few weeks ago, as I was driving Kayla back up to Gravenhurst, we were lucky. We, we narrowly missed that tornado that hit uh, Barry. And it wasn't until we watched the news that we saw the devastation that that tornado left behind. Can you imagine how you would feel if that was your home and you come back and, and your walls are broken, your furniture is all tattered and torn, maybe you don't even have a roof? How depressed and sad would you feel? Yes, there was a practical need for the walls to rebuild, but there was an even greater need for this wall to rebuild so that the Jews could see God's hand in their life again. The physical restoration of the wall albeit important, had a far greater symbolic importance of declaring God's grace, God's blessing, and his power and protection over them. Nehemiah 6 verse 16 says that when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. 
for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. To this point, the Jews were sad. They were listless. They were humiliated. They had all but turned away from their faith in God. The restoration not only met their physical needs, but it brought their attention back to God as their provider and their protector. And it drew them closer to him. How does our calling solve a need? But more importantly, how does our calling draw others towards God? One of my favorite speakers is John Piper. And, uh, and he once stated that for every Christian, there is only but one calling. One calling for every Christian to bring people towards the cross of Jesus. And so if that's true, we don't have to be missionaries or have that title of missionary. Whether you work in a retail store, a hospital, or an office, or you're a student, whatever you're doing, the question we need to ask ourselves is how are we pointing others towards God? A few years ago, um, my dog, Quiz, had an unfortunate encounter with a skunk. And my dog, you know, his nature is when any animal comes into our backyard, he will bark and chase after it. You know, he's protecting the home. And it's usually squirrels that he's chasing away. This time he made a big mistake. He went after a skunk. And the skunk raised his tail and push, got my dog flat out. And I made the biggest mistake. I brought my dog into my home. You never do that. And what happened was a month of pure misery. He brought in, I think they call them, the, the skunk is not even oils, it's these things called theals that skunks have, and it permeated everywhere. It got into our carpets, our curtains, our furniture, um, even worse, our clothes, our skin. And no matter how many detergents I used or how many showers I took, for weeks, everywhere my family walked, we had this smell that we carried with us. You know, the Bible speaks of another smell, another fragrance, aroma, a much sweeter one. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 to 16 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. To those, among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to another a fragrance from life to life. One of the main questions um, that teachers that I'm recruiting to work overseas ask me is, Tim, how do we preach the gospel in those particular countries if it's illegal to do so? It's a great question, right? And, and my answer to them is that our testimony goes way beyond what is actually taught in the classroom. The testimony is how we love our students, the parents, and the community, and the way we treat and love one another. That is our testimony for Christ. In fact, one of the greatest stories we have and encourages us to have is when non-Christian parents tell us and say, you know, there's something different about this school. We can't put our finger on it, but there's something different about this school. There's a special way that these teachers love these kids and love each other and us that we've never experienced any other school we've been into. That is the aroma of Christ. 
I'm not here today representing a mission organization to tell you that you need to somehow go overseas to be a missionary. The truth is, few, if any of you, will truly be called to that. But I am here to challenge you, including myself, to be a living testimony for Christ. If the greatest need is to draw others towards the cross, how are we carrying the aroma of Christ in our daily lives to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our classmates, to even our family? Can other people see Christ in the way that we speak to them, the way we treat them, and the way we love one another? A calling requires us to draw others towards Christ. But our calling can't be done alone. A calling requires a community. While Nehemiah was the leader and the face of this rebuilding project, he couldn't have done it on his own. Uh, aside from permission and resource, the king provided him with armed escorts uh, and letters to governors so Nehemiah could safely travel through to Jerusalem. When Nehemiah started, he had a small dedicated group of volunteers, soldiers that would guard the gate, uh, skilled artisans and workers and laborers that would do all the key tasks. In fact, chapter 3 of Nehemiah just lists all the different people that worked on the wall. By the time he had finished, he had practically a small army of people to, that was working on this wall project. And he finished it in 52 days. But perhaps one of the most significant helpers he had was Ezra. The work that Nehemiah did to restore and complete the wall could not have happened without Ezra first finishing the restoration of the temple. It, it, it is not an accident that the rebuilding of Jerusalem first started with building the temple, a place where God's people would come together to worship him in community. Similarly, we are not called individually. We're not called to be a one-person act, to go on a solo mission. We are called to be in community. God created us to worship in community, to serve in community, to learn from one another. We need each other to celebrate our victories and our joys, and we most definitely need each other during our times of trials and difficulties. But the key is we need one another. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. You know, this pandemic has lasted longer than any of us could have ever imagined. And even now, as we're starting to open up the church, the fact that I'm looking at an empty, half-empty sanctuary is a reflection of how long it's been since our church family has been physically together. And while we are grateful that technology has allowed us to continue to meet virtually with one another, let's be very clear that that is not what church is meant to be. This is not what church is meant to be. 
you know, one of the concerns of the church leadership is that when all of this is finally over, that many of us won't return. That the time away and the convenience of having church sitting on your couch and watching on Zoom will somehow become the new normal. But our prayer is that that won't happen. Our prayer is that you can't wait to return. That you can't wait to come back and fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to see each other and to worship in community. Whatever call God has given you, know that it is not possible without the support of fellow Christians. And it is sustained and strengthened by a strong foundation in your church family. Are we prepared to include others in our calling? A calling requires a community. And a community is particularly important as we face the fifth lesson. A calling from God will meet adversity. Up until this point, make sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be, yes. Up to this point, it would seem everything was perfect for Nehemiah. I mean, he rose to one of the most highest positions in the king's court. He got not only the king's permission, but his resources and his protection to go on this mission. He had a, a, a strong support of a community that volunteered their time to help him to rebuild this wall. I mean, everything was smooth sailing. I mean, wouldn't that be great? If we as Christians are willing to answer the call to Jesus, then everything is going to be perfect, right? Boy, I wish that was true. And it was far from an easy ride for Nehemiah. We read in chapter 2, verse 10, that Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah were not happy that someone had come help the Israelites. Verse 19, um, we also learned that they go in on the cues, uh, Nehemiah, of trying to organize a rebellion. In fact, there were three men who used various ploys, these three men, to disrupt the Jews' work. These men sought to harm Nehemiah. Five different times they tried to trick Nehemiah into having what they said, a friendly conversation with him. Let's, let's meet outside the city gates, Nehemiah. We just want to talk to you. We just want to have a simple conversation with you. But the truth is they, they had every intention of harming him and hurting him. And when that didn't work, um, they tried to intimidate him with false reports. They sent letters claiming that Nehemiah's true purpose was that he wanted to become king of the Jews. They even went as far as trying to trick him uh, with false prophets and saying these false prophets telling him that he shouldn't be building this wall. And when all else failed, they tried to influence the nobles of Judah to try to stop this project. You know, although the Jews were now able to return to their homeland, clearly there are people that didn't want this to happen. And it's actually quite remarkable that with all this opposition, that Nehemiah was able to complete this job in such a short time. While answering the call is every believer's primary goal, it's foolish to think that obedience to this task will not meet opposition. The reality is as much as God wants us to follow his call and bring glory to him, there is a real enemy doing everything in his power to undermine you, to discourage you, to post doubt into your hearts. 
to prevent us from serving God. Answering our call from God is not an easy task, and it's very likely it'll be met with opposition, trials, and even hardship. Um, for those who know my family's story, Connie and I uh, and the family spent 11 years overseas, and we were based in Hong Kong, serving with team, and a lot of our ministry work happened across the border. But prior to my family moving back to Canada, our last 15 months overseas was among the hardest in our life. And while I'm not going to go into details, what I can share with you was that we were going through some pretty intense stuff that there were days I literally did not want to wake up. I did not want to get out of bed. I, I was depressed. I was sad. And I remember a particularly hard day, and my mission teammate, his name was Jack, uh, sent me this verse to try to encourage me. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm going to be honest with you. Especially during this dark time of my life, I had a lot of trouble with this verse. I mean, I think my response is, are you kidding me? You're sending me this? I mean, I get the importance of praying without ceasing. And Connie and I were on our knees every day praying for a miracle. I could even accept that what we were going through was the will of God. But I was supposed to be thankful? God wants me to rejoice? Does, does God want us to be thankful when we lose our jobs? Thankful when we have a serious illness? Are we supposed to be rejoicing when we are suffering or when injustice happens? Or worse, should we be thankful when we lose someone dear to us? I don't know about you. I had a lot of trouble being thankful and rejoiceful during the most difficult, one of the most difficult times in my life. But as I read this verse again, I realized it didn't say that I was to be thankful for all circumstances, but it said to give thanks in every circumstance. And as I look back now, 10 years later, and I see how my life has transpired from then to now, I can see how God's hand was working. And like the master artist he was, how his plan for my life, albeit difficult and painful, is far better than the life I envisioned for myself. And in this way, I can honestly say today that I am thankful for being in that circumstance. Being a follower of Christ is not a promise of an easy life. There's going to be some difficulties you're going to face. But God knows our final destination. And it's in these trials and tribulations that God is molding us and, and, and guiding us to the life he has planned for us. It's sometimes so hard to see beyond the hurt and pain of our present. But if we are going to answer the call of God, then that means having total dependency and faith that his plan for our life is far better than our own 
And when we can accept that, we can truly rejoice and give thanks in any circumstance. Are we prepared for the struggles of life and to trust that God's plan is better than our own? A calling from God will meet adversity. And it leads us to the final lesson. A calling will last a lifetime. After completing the wall, the obvious thing would be for Nehemiah to return back to being the cupbearer. I mean, it was a great job. King obviously wanted him. But that's not what Nehemiah did. In fact, Nehemiah would actually remain uh, in the small district of Judea for another 12 years. You know, just because the city was physically rebuilt, he understood that there was still so much more the Jews needed to do to thrive. And so he stayed on as governor and through economic reforms, revised the livelihoods for the Jewish inhabitants. But more importantly, Nehemiah wanted the Jews to rediscover and strengthen their relationship with God. Relationships that had been strained over so many years of living in this broken city. Nehemiah understood that the call to rebuild the wall wasn't a one and done deal thing, but a call, one call of many that he would have to complete throughout his life to bring glory to God. One of the biggest callings in my life was to start a school in China. And much of it was inspired by a missionary, a mentor, and a missionary named David Crane. And he's the one on the second to the right. David was born in Hong Kong, grew up as a missionary uh, in China. His father had opened a, a school for blind girls there. And uh, when he moved to the US, he became a pastor, and then he would spend 30 plus years serving in Trinidad, working as a missionary. In the early 90s, team asked him if he would return to Hong Kong uh, as he neared retirement uh, to oversee a group of missionaries that are now based there. You see, 1997 was coming, and that was the big year of the changeover from British rule to China rule. And the hope was that this new change would open up China to missionary work. To give a bit of a timeline, I arrived in Hong Kong in 1995. So that's why I'm so thin there and young there, right? And uh, it was a year before Connie joined us. Well, what turned into a three, four year retirement plan for the Cranes turned out into 12 more years of ministry. In fact, it was only cancer that would eventually force David to return home. I remember his son, Dan, sharing this story um, at his memorial service. A few days before Dave passed away, while he was still able to talk, many people had come to the hospital to offer their prayers and condolences. And Dave, you know, he had this big pastor's booming voice. He rebuked them all. You know, he says, why are you here praying for me? He says, I don't need your prayers and sympathy. I know where I'm going. But there are people out there that don't. You should be praying for them. Bring me some nurses and some doctors so I can share the gospel to them while I still can. That was, that was so Dave. You know, I once asked him, I said, Dave, are you ever going to actually retire? And Dave, you know, he took his big burly arms, he put it around my shoulder. He said, Timmy, my boy, he said, every missionary, every pastor, 
Every worker eventually will retire. But a follower of Christ never does. And so I'm going to preach the good news of the gospel to anyone willing to listen until my final breath. And I can honestly say he lived up to those words. Every job and career has an expiry date. Eventually, age and other limitations will alter what we can do. But being a Christian and a follower of Christ is a lifelong commitment. Are we actively listening to God through prayer and meditation of his word? Are we prepared to give God our full and unreserved dependency? Does our daily lives exude the aroma of Christ so that others can be pointed towards the cross? And are we willing to work and worship in community in order to fulfill God's calling? Are we prepared for the challenges and trials that will come our way? And lastly, are we ready to live out this call until Christ returns or calls us home? No one knows how long God will give us, but, but it's just that, right? It's a gift. And I, I know it's a cliche, but we really do need to start and treat each day God gives us as a gift from God. But, but it's how we use this gift for God that is every believer's calling. Let's close in prayer.